Lord, hear our plea this morning for the coming, the inbreaking, the arrival of your kingdom on earth, in our lives, on this campus, and all around us as it is in heaven. Disrupt our comforts. Grab our attention. Bring us to your feet. And help us this morning to hear you clearly. For Lord, to whom else shall we turn? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Amen. You may be seated. Wondering if any of you can relate to this scenario. Maybe one of your roommates has done this to you already this year. Or maybe a parent has done it to you growing up where someone walks into a room where you've been sleeping and they just turn the lights on full. Anybody, anybody have an experience like this from a very kind and thoughtful roommate? Anybody ever been that roommate or that parent? Yeah, where you just fly. And what happens in that moment? The reason, the reason why you react as adversely as you do is that your pupils aren't big enough to take in the change and the influx of light, and so it's blinding. And the first thing that you want to do is reach for the switch and turn it back off and make the disruption of light go away. See, our souls are a lot like our pupils. When a disruption comes into our lives, our natural human reaction is to make it want to go away. Kay Katan is an author and writing on reflections on the pandemic talked about whether or not our hearts, our souls would receive a disruption into our lives as an interruption or a disruption. You see, an interruption when it comes is just simply a pause. It's a a hiatus. It's something that just causes a break with the expectation that we will return back to a place of normalcy. That what we were doing before, we will actually do again in the same way. But sometimes when God wants to get our attention, he doesn't just want a time in worship or a time with him to be an interruption. He wants it to be a disruption. He wants your apple cart to get upset. He needs to jar us loose from the patterns that we've been in, and so we're not finding simply security from the effort we're putting in or the habits or the disciplines we've put in place, but by something altogether different, a disruption, transformation through disruption. You see, throughout Scripture, we see this pattern of the same human heart wanting to respond the way we do when the light comes on bright in a room. We would rather be enslaved to predictability than experience the freedom of possibility. Like the Israelites getting led out of captivity, out of slavery, out of Egypt, God miraculously delivers them with ten plagues, then he parts the sea, then he drowns the enemy army, and on the other side they're like, yeah, but what have you done for us lately? You know, it, would, it was actually better in the predictability of slavery because at least we had food in our pots. And at least we knew what was coming next. And I wonder how many of us actually all live our lives the same way. Better the devil you know than the Jesus you haven't learned, yet learned to trust. That we would rather go with something that's comfortable and predictable 
even if it's damaging to us. Like a battered wife syndrome, where we would rather come back even to hurt or pain or abuse than we would be terrified by the freedom that possibly awaits us through something else. This is the human condition in our enslavement to sin. We're more like the Pharisees than any one of us want to admit, aren't we? We are drawn to tradition and to habit. And there are beautiful things within all of that, to be sure. There are so many things for us to learn from the history of the church. But when it's the comforts of the patterns themselves and not the God behind it, our faith becomes a work of effort, a series of rituals and patterns, and we find comfort in the predictability and not in the presence of God. That article ends, and Kay Katan pulls up this passage from Isaiah in the version of the message and leaves it here. It just says, forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something brand new. And it's bursting out. Don't you see it? What's going on in your life right now where you need not an interruption or a pause from the patterns that you're in, but a disruption, something entirely new, to experience transformation because of disruption? What I want to do with you this morning is we're going to look at the next series of verses in the book of Galatians, and this is Paul now recounting his version of his disruption. His conversion experience, which wasn't an interruption where he would go back to doing what he did before, it was truly a disruption where God needed to change the course of his life and of who he was and of how he was living it. And I think that from this, what I want to do with you is glean out some principles of transformation that can come in disruption. Otherwise, we might miss the opportunities in the midst of the hardest things that happen in life to see where God might actually be moving. I was swapping stories with a friend of the university yesterday, and we were talking about missions, and, he's, and he said, do you know and do you acknowledge and recognize that right now the two fastest places in the world where the church is growing is Iran and Afghanistan? Jesus loves disruptions. And he doesn't need affluent settledness in order to create revival. He often does it in the midst of hardship. In fact, he created one for Paul. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see the, those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. 
I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They had only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. I find this beginning in the book of Galatians so fascinating because in Acts 9 we read the story that Luke is telling of Saul's conversion to Paul and of the transformation that happened in his life. But this is the autobiographical account. This is Paul now telling us how he perceived what happened and how God changed him. And so what I want to do with you this morning is just try to pull out four gleanings of transformation, not formulas of transformation, not this is the way it always happens, but sometimes this is how God changes us. True transformation is always God's work and not ours. This little disruptive word, but. David Platt calls this the beautiful but in Scripture. It interrupts and it changes things. It disrupts patterns. It's the language of grace because it means that God is doing the initiation. God is doing the moving. God has something in mind. Paul was on a trajectory making things happen in his life the way that he saw it was supposed to be. But God intervened and changed it. It's the beautiful but. The other team scored a touchdown on the last play of the game, but there was a flag on the play. There was a terrible car accident, but no one was hurt. You see the disruption of the but that happens when God intervenes? Paul's life was being carved out as a terrorist, but God intervened. I was talking this week after church with um, Dale Voss, professor of agriculture here. And we were talking about this horrific death in our community of Lorna Moss being hit by a drunk driver while out on her bike. And Dale had relayed the story to me um, how his mother was killed by a drunk driver in 1979. And then he told me the but part of the story. How 25 years later, that same person came back to him and told him that it was the manner in which they forgave him and interacted with him that led to his own conversion to Christ. But God. See, one of the best things about being a follower of Jesus is there's always this but that can happen when things feel like they're going awry and life is just happening to us. But God intervenes. And then listen to all the, all the language here, the grace of the grammar of the text. But when God, who set me apart, see, God was the one who set him apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. God sets him apart. God calls him. God intervenes. God reveals his son in him. Every passage of grace in Scripture begins with the movement of God. God becomes the subject of the verb. God takes over the doing. God intervenes. A world gone astray, but God sends his son and changes. Some of you are in desperate need of a but entering into your life right now. A but God moment.
This is what I'm reading right now, the latest book on my shelf called Ragged, Spiritual Disciplines for the Spiritually Exhausted. I was walking through the prairie this morning on my way coming here, just praying, and I ran into a gentleman, and we talked, and we were swapping stories, and um, someone I've always looked up to in their faith, and I walked away, and I started playing in my headphones this song that we were singing this morning, um, You're Lifting Up My Load Again, and I could just sort of hear and feel the affirmation and the resonance of the Spirit in that, of just, Aaron, tell them that if their Christian life is exhausting right now, they're doing it wrong. You guys, if you are tired and weary in the manner in which you are trying to be a follower of God, I want you to hear this well. You're doing it wrong. This is supposed to be freedom and delight and joy and resurrection. You're lifting my load again. And look where this happens too. True transformation often occurs in the most resistant parts of us. God took the enemy of the early church, someone who presided with joy over the martyrdom, persecution, and killing of Christians, and God's like, I want that. And I want you to hear that this morning, because if there's every any part of you that feels like that isn't going to get touched by God in my lifetime, hear the story of Paul well. The seeds of the gospel are often planted in the darkest parts of who we are, in the most hopeless of moments are the places where God wants to show you the strength of the gospel and the power of his grace. And the part inside of you right now that is the most resistant to change and the most fearful of change, I want to tell you is the place that the Spirit of God wants right now. And where he wants to show you this personally. Paul describes the way that he was doing all of this. And the effort that he was putting all in. J.D. Greer, reflecting on this movement in Galatians, says it like this. God doesn't call us from a place of need. God doesn't actually need us in this movement. Instead, we call to him. We get the grace. He gets the glory. And get this. We never switch roles. Because if you do, you'll live a life of guilt-laden burnout instead of one of sustained, joy-filled, life-giving sacrifice. I mean this in the kindest and most loving way possible. You're not that big of a deal. Can you hear the freedom in that? You're not that big of a deal. I'm not that big of a deal. None of us are that big of a deal. If God wants to get something done, God's going to get it done. But there's enough Midwest Christian Protestant work ethic and, let's be honest, pride in us that we really are resistant to this part of the gospel at times. I want to add something. I want to give something back. I want to bring the efforts that I've put towards the kingdom back before God. And then be like, wow, Aaron, that's really impressive. In all reality, it's like a kindergartner drew a picture, brings it to his dad, right? And dad's, dad says he loves it because it's his kid. It's not actually a Picasso. It's not actually, right, some Jackson Pollock work. It's, but it's going up on the fridge, my grubby goodness is put up on God's big fridge all the time. Not because it's impressive, but because he's enamored with me and you. God's fridge is littered with your grubby little goodness. But it's beautiful to him. But it's not actually impressing, and it's not 
earning anything you didn't already have. He likes it because he loves you. That's it. The third gleaning in this text. True transformation happens only in God's presence. I feel like we're in a day and an age where whenever something big happens to our lives, our first reaction is to go and validate it through somebody else's eyes. We go to man before anything else. But I want you to notice what Paul does when he encounters the most disruptive thing in his entire life. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. When was the last time something disruptive in your life happened and the first thing that you did was take it to the Lord in prayer? Or just find a way to get away and escape with him? Nobody ever told me in the Sunday school story teaching of Paul's Damascus Road experience that he ended up going into Arabia and disappearing for three years before coming back. Paul took himself back through college all over again. And I love the way that this happens in the time. You know, it says, he says for th- and then three years later I came back. He met Jesus, and then he got away with Jesus. Why three years? I mean, probably there was a certain amount of time where he just had to get the other apostles to realize he wasn't actually killing people anymore, so they would talk to him. But did Paul want three years with Jesus just like the other apostles got to walk with him? That he really did want his presence and not his performance anymore. Remember we talked about that last week? It's where God changes us and where God wants to bring this all about. God does this so uniquely with Paul and he does it uniquely inside each one of us too. Why did God blind Paul? You ever wonder that? You see, in the Old Testament, the Yahweh that Paul had been preaching and teaching all of his life, in the Old Testament, nobody ever actually gets healed of blindness. That was believed that something only God himself could do. So then Jesus goes and literally knocks Paul off his high horse, lays him low, blinds him to show him how blind he really is, brings healing to him as only Yahweh himself can do, and makes him dependent on somebody else to lead him around in his blindness and humbles him. Oh, I hate it when God humbles me. That is one of the most painful parts of transformation, isn't it? But you do understand that Paul could never have become Paul unless God rocked his world. He would have kept going. He is persistent and stubborn. We see that in his character. I see it in the mirror every morning when I get ready. So sometimes God loves us enough to do it like that. But the last one here, and this is super key, you guys, true transformation happens only in God's timing. We've come to use the Damascus Road experience almost as Christian shorthand for a Christian shortcut. Like, I wish God would just reveal himself in some super powerful way to me, as if, like, I would have some weekend transformation or the sin that I've been trying to leave in my life would just disappear instantly. The Damascus Road experience wasn't a momentary experience for Paul. It was three years of transformation in Arabia, getting away with Jesus before coming back. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I went into Arabia, and then later I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. 
to get acquainted with Cephas. So here, and then only him and James are, does he have any interaction with? Only two of the apostles. It actually doesn't happen until chapter 2. He says, then after 14 years, right after he's gone to Cilicia and elsewhere, I went back up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along, and then he met the other apostles. Did you learn that in the Sunday school version of the Damascus Road story that Paul never actually met all the other apostles until 14 years later? So if you're ever getting a little bit frustrated that God's not working in you fast enough right now, take heart from Paul. God's timing comes in God's timing, and it doesn't operate on our clock or in a way that we want. And so what we need to do when we want to experience transformation from God is really in opening ourselves up and stop telling him how we want it to happen and when we want it to happen, but just that we want it to happen. See, because as soon as we can manipulate God in any way, shape, or form, the Holy Spirit doesn't like getting put in a box and does not like being reduced to formulas and throughout history has loved to surprise his church of all the places where he works and the moments he shows up. Because you know what we would do, right? Like if we finally figured out how it was that the Holy Spirit worked, we would formulate it, we'd find a way to franchise it, we'd sell it, we'd write books about it, and we'd find a way to like market the Holy Spirit. And I don't think God would ever let that happen. Jesus did not die so the third person of the Trinity could come and live inside of you and then answer to your human and sinful whims. He came to change them. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, and what we're going to do is just remain seated here, and we're actually going to sing over you. And what I want us to do in this time is just ask, like, ask the Spirit, God, what do you want to transform? What do you want to disrupt in my life right now? What did you bring me here today not to experience 35 minutes in a chapel of an interruption in my day, but what do you want to disrupt in me right now? What do you actually want to see changed? And can I open myself up, the posture of my heart, and just say, you, you get that. You, you, you get all of me on your terms and not mine anymore. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we all know cognitively that our best efforts lead us nowhere. We know better than Paul. And yet, Lord, it's, it is hard for us to let go and to enter into a place of trust, to let you have everything. And Lord, we ask that we would learn how to try softer. We would learn how to open up the posture of our heart and our lives. Learn somehow to be brave enough to embrace vulnerability so you can have your way. So you can be the subject of more of our verbs. So you can do the doing. Because you're so crazy about us. You love us better than we love ourselves and you treat us better than we treat ourselves. So we're left asking ourselves, why don't we trust you more? We just ask you to meet us in this time and show us some place you want to grow us right now. In the risen and life-altering name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.